0: Book 4 Heroines and Heroes of Plateau and Desert Chapter 24 of the Book of Missionary Heroes by Basil Matthews This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dave Harrell The Book of Missionary Heroes by Basil Matthews Chapter 24 a Race Against Time Henry Martin The dates born 1781 died 1812 The time of the incident 1810 to 1812 In the story of Sabat that was told in the previous chapter you will remember that for a part of the time that he lived in India he worked with an Englishman named Henry Martin Sabat was almost a giant henry martin was slight and not very strong yet as we shall see in the story that follows henry martin was braver and more constant than Sabat himself as a boy henry who was born and went to school in truro in cornwall in the west of england was violently passionate sensitive and physically rather fragile and at school was protected from bullies by a big boy the son of Admiral Kempthorne. He left school at the age of fifteen, and shot and read till he was seventeen. In 1797 he became an undergraduate at St. John's College, Cambridge. He was still very passionate. For instance, when a man was ragging him in the college hall at dinner, he was so furious that he flung a knife at him, which stuck quivering in the paneling of the wall. Kempthorne, his old friend, was at Cambridge with him. They used to read the Bible together, and Martin became a real Christian and fought hard to overcome his violent temper. He was a very clever scholar and became a fellow of Jesus College in 1802. He at that time took orders in the Church of England. He became very keen on reading about missionary work. For example, Carey's story of nine years' work in periodical accounts and the LMS report on Vanderkamp in South Africa. "'I read nothing else while it lasted,' he said of the Vanderkamp report. He was accepted as a chaplain of the East India Company. They could not sail till Admiral Nelson gave the word, because the French were waiting to capture all the British ships. Five men of war convoyed them when they sailed in 1805. They waited off Ireland because the immediate invasion of England by Napoleon was threatened. On board, Martin worked hard at Hindustani, Bengali, and Portuguese. He already knew Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. He arrived at Madras, South India, and Calcutta, and thence went to Cawnpore. It is at this point that our yarn begins. A voice like thunder, speaking in a strange tongue, shouted across an Indian garden one night in 1809. The new moon, looking like a ball of ebony in an ivory cup, as one who was there that night said, threw a cold light over the palm trees and aloes, on the man who was speaking, and on those who were seated around him at the table in the bungalow. Beyond the garden, the life of Cawnpore moved in its many streets. The shout of a donkey driver, the shrill of a bugle from the barracks broke sharply through the muffled sounds of the city. The June wind, heavy with the waters of the Ganges, which flows past Cawnpore, made the night insufferably hot. But the heat did not trouble Sabat, the wild son of the Arabian desert, who was talking, as he always did, in a roaring voice that was louder than most men shouting. He was telling the story of Abdallah's brave death as a Christian martyr. Quietly listening to Sabat's voice, though he could not understand what he was saying, was a young Italian, Padre Julius Caesar, a monk of the Order of the Jesuits. On his head was a little skull-cap, over his body a robe of fine purple satin, held with a girdle of twisted silk. Near him sat an Indian scholar, on his dark head a full turban, and about him richly colored robes. On the other side sat a little thin copper-colored Bengali, dressed in white, and a British officer in his scarlet and gold uniform, with his wife, who has told us the story of that evening. Not one of these brightly dressed people was, however, the strongest power there. A man in black clothes was the real center of the group. Very slight in build, not tall, clean-shaven, with a high forehead and sensitive lips, Young Henry Martin seemed a stripling beside the flaming Arab. Yet Sabat, with all his sound and fury, was no match for the swift-witted, clear-brained young Englishman. Henry Martin was a chaplain in the army of the East India Company, which then ruled India. He was the only one of those who were listening to Sabat who could understand what he was saying. When Sabat had finished his story, Martin turned and in his clear musical voice translated it from the Persian into Latin mixed with Italian for Padre Julius Caesar, into Hindustani for the Indian scholar, into Bengali for the Bengal gentleman, and into English for the British officer and his wife. Martin could also talk to Sabat himself both in Arabic and in Persian. As Martin listened to the rolling sentences of Sabat, the Christian Arab, he seemed to see the lands beyond India, away across the Khyber Pass, where Sabbat had traveled, Mesopotamia, Arabia, Persia. Henry Martin knew that in all of those lands the people were Mohammedans. He wanted one thing above everything else in the world. That was to give them all the chance of doing what Sabbat and Abdallah had done, the chance of reading in their own languages the one book in the world that could tell them that God was a father, the book of letters and of biographies that we call the new testament the toil of brain there was not in the world a copy of the new testament in good persian to make one henry martin slaved hard foreign to the hot sultry indian nights with scores of mosquitoes pinging round his lamp and his head grinding at his persian grammar so that he could translate the life of jesus christ into that language even while he was listening to Sabat's story in the bungalow at Kanpur, Martin knew that he was so ill that he could not live for many years more. The doctor said that he must leave India for a time to be in a healthier place. Should he go home to England, where all his friends were? He wanted that, but much more he wanted to go on with his work. So he asked the doctor if he might go to Persia on the way home, and he agreed. So Martin went down from Cawnpore to Calcutta, and in a boat down the Huguli River to the little Arab coasting sailing ship the Humadi, which hoisted sail and started on its voyage round India to Bombay. Martin read while on board the Old Testament in the original Hebrew and the New Testament in the original Greek, so that he might understand them better and make a more perfect translation into Persian. He read the Koran of Mohammed so that he could argue with the Persians about it. And he worked hard at Arabic grammar, and read books in Persian. Yet he was forever cracking jokes with his fellow travelers, cooped up in a little ship on the hot tropical seas. From Bombay, the governor granted Martin a passage up the Persian Gulf in the Benares, a ship in the Indian Navy that was going on a cruise to finish the exciting work of hunting down the fierce Arab pirates of the Persian Gulf. So on Lady Day, 1811, the sailors got her under way and tacked northward up the gulf, till at last, on May twenty-first, the roofs and minarets of Bouchard hove into sight. Martin, leaning over the bulwarks, could see the town jutting out into the gulf on a spit of sand, and the sea almost surrounding it. That day he set foot for the first time on the soil of Persia. Across Persia, on a pony aboard ship martin had allowed his beard and moustache to grow when he landed at bushire he bought and wore the clothes of a persian gentleman so that he should escape from attracting everybody's notice by wearing clothes such as the people had never seen before no one who had seen the pale clean-shaven clergyman in black silk coat and trousers in cawnpore would have recognized the henry martin who rode out that night on his pony with an armenian servant zachariah of Isfahan, on his long one hundred and seventy-mile journey from bushar to shiraz he wore a conical cap of black astrakhan fur great baggy trousers of blue bright red leather boots a white tunic of chintz and over that a flowing cloak they went out through the gates of Bushire onto the great plain of burning sand that stretched away for ninety miles ahead of them. They traveled by night, because the day was intolerably hot, but even at midnight the heat was over one hundred degrees. It was a fine moonlight night. The stars sparkled over the plain. The bells tinkled on the mules' necks as they walked across the sand. All else was silent. At last dawn broke martin pitched his little tent under a tree the only shelter he could get gradually the heat grew more and more intense he was already so ill that it was difficult to travel when the thermometer was above a hundred and twelve degrees fever heat says martin i began to lose my strength fast it became intolerable i wrapped myself up in a blanket and all the covering i could get to defend myself from the air by this means the moisture was kept a little longer upon the body i thought i should have lost my senses the thermometer at last stood at one hundred twenty six degrees i concluded that death was inevitable at last the sun went down the thermometer crept lower it was night and time to start again but martin had not slept or eaten he could hardly sit upright on his pony yet he set out and travelled on through the night Next morning he had a little shelter of leaves and branches made, and an Arab poured water on the leaves and on Martin all day to try to keep some of the frightful heat from him. But even then the heat almost slew him. So they marched on through another night, and then camped under a grove of date palms. I threw myself on the burning ground and slept, Martin wrote. When the tent came up I awoke in a burning fever. All day I had recourse to the wet towel, which kept me alive but would allow of no sleep at nine that night they struck camp the ground threw up the heat that it had taken from the sun during the day so frightfully hot was the air that even at midnight martin could not travel without a wet towel round his face and neck as the night drew on the plain grew rougher then it began to rise to the foothills and mountains at last the pony and mules were clambering up rough steep paths so wild that there was as martin said nothing to mark the road but the rocks being a little more worn in one place than in another suddenly in the darkness the pony stopped dimly through the gloom martin could see that they were on the edge of a tremendous precipice a single step more would have plunged him over to be smashed on the rocks hundreds of feet below martin did not move or try to guide the beast he knew that the pony himself was the safest guide in a minute or two the animal moved and step by step clambered carefully up the rock-strewn mountain-side at last they came out on the mountain-top but only to find that they were on the edge of a flat high plain a table-land the air was pure and fresher the mules and the travellers revived martin's pony began to trot briskly along so as dawn came up they came in sight of a great courtyard built by the king of that country to refresh pilgrims. Through night after night they tramped across plateau and mountain range, till they climbed the third range, and then plunged by a winding rocky path into a wide valley where, at a great town called Kasran, in a garden of cypress trees, was a summer house. Martin lay down on the floor, but could not sleep, though he was horribly weary. There seemed, he said, to be fire within my head, my skin like a cinder. His heart beat like a hammer. They went on climbing another range of mountains, first tormented by mosquitoes, then frozen with cold. Martin was so overwhelmed with sleep that he could not sit on his pony and had to hurry ahead to keep awake, and then sit down with his back against a rock, where he fell asleep in a second and had to be shaken to wake up when zachariah the armenian mule-driver came up to where he was they had at last climbed the four mountain rungs of the ladder to persia and came out on june eleventh eighteen eleven on the great plain where the city of shiraz stands here he found the host jaffer ali khan to whom he carried his letters of introduction Martin, in his Persian dress, seated on the ground, was feasted with curries and rice, sweets cooled with snow, and perfumed with rose water and coffee. Ali Khan had a lovely garden of orange trees, and in the garden Martin sat. Ill as he was, he worked day in and day out to translate the life of Jesus Christ in the New Testament from the Greek language into pure and simple Persian. The kind host put up a tent for Martin in the garden, close to some beautiful vines, from which hung lovely bunches of purple grapes. By the side of his tent ran a clear stream of running water. All the evening nightingales sang sweetly and mournfully. As he sat there at his work, men came hundreds of miles to talk with this holy man, as they felt him to be. Moslems, they yet traveled even from Baghdad and Basra and Isfahan, to hear this infidel speak of Jesus Christ and to argue as to which was the true religion. Prince Abbas Mirza invited him to come to speak with him, and as Martin entered the prince's courtyard, a hundred fountains began to send up jets of water in his honor. At last they came to him in such numbers that Martin was obliged to say to many of them that he could not see them. He hated sending them away. What was it forced him to do so? THE RACE AGAINST TIME it was because he was running a race against time he knew that he could not live very long because the disease that had smitten his lungs was gaining ground every day and the thing that he had come to persia for the object that had made him face the long voyage the frightful heat and the freezing cold of the journey the life thousands of miles from his home in cornwall was that he might finish such a translation of the new testament into persian that men should love to read years and years after he had died so each day martin finished another page or two of the book written in lovely persian letters he began the work within a week of reaching shiraz and in seven months february eighteen twelve it was finished three more months were spent in writing out the beautiful copies of the whole of the new testament in this new translation to be presented to the shah of persia and to the heir to the throne, Prince Abbas Mirza. Then he started away on a journey right across Persia to find the Shah and Prince, so that he might give his precious books to them. On the way he fell ill with great fever. He was so weak and giddy that he could not stand. One night his head ached so that it almost drove him mad. He shook all over with fever. Then a great sweat broke out. He was almost unconscious with weakness but at midnight when the call came to start he mounted his horse and as he says set out rather dead than alive so he pressed on in great weakness till he reached tabriz and there met the british ambassador martin was rejoiced and felt that all his pains were repaid when sir gore owsley said that he himself would present the sacred book to the shah and the prince when the day came to give the book to Prince Abbas, poor Henry Martin was so weak that he could not rise from his bed. Before the other copy could be presented to the Shah, Martin had died. This is how it came about. The Last Trail His great work was done. The New Testament was finished. He sent a copy to the printers in India. He could now go home to England and try to get well again. He started out on horseback with two Armenian servants and a Turkish guide. He was making along the old track that has been the road from Asia to Europe for thousands of years. His plan was to travel across Persia, through Armenia, and over the Black Sea to Constantinople, and so back to England. For forty-five days he moved on, often going as much as ninety miles, and generally as much as sixty in a day. He slept in filthy inns where fleas and lice abounded, and mosquitoes tormented him. Horses, cows, buffaloes, and sheep would pass through his sleeping room, and the stench of the stables nearly poisoned him. Yet he was so ill that often he could hardly keep his seat on his horse. He traveled through deep ravines and over high mountain passes, and across vast plains. His head ached till he felt it would split. He could not eat fever came on. He shook with ague. Yet his remorseless Turkish guide, Hassan, dragged him along because he wanted to get the journey over and go back home. At last, one day Martin got rest on damp ground in the hovel, his eyes and forehead feeling as though a great fire burnt in them. I was almost frantic, he wrote. Martin was, in fact, dying. Yet Hassan compelled him to ride a hundred and seventy miles of mountain track to Tokat. Here on October 6, 1812, he wrote in his journal, No horses to be had. I had an unexpected repose. I sat in the orchard and thought with sweet comfort and peace of my God, in solitude, my company, my friend, my comforter. It was the last word he was ever to write alone without a human friend by him, he fell asleep. But the book that he had written with his lifeblood, the Persian New Testament, was printed, and has told thousands of Persians in far places where no Christian man has penetrated, that story of the love of God that is shown in Jesus Christ. End of chapter 24